Hello and welcome back to another episode of Radical Ones. I am your producer, Phineas, and Xander is out again this week, and he'll be back shortly. But in the meantime, we're doing another special episode this week. We are focusing on climate justice. This is another theme that we speak to throughout the podcast in many different episodes. First, you're going to hear from Ibrahim Al-Husseini, who is a venture capitalist and entrepreneur focusing on investments that accelerate the deployment of climate-restoring technologies. He is taking his background in investments and finance and applying it to companies and products and initiatives that he believes will have large-scale impact on the climate crisis. From there, you will hear from fashion entrepreneur Marcy Zaroff. She has founded several companies and initiatives. She was there at the very beginning of the eco-fashion movement and is actually personally responsible for much of the change that you see in the industry today. She is leading this charge on many, many fronts, and she talks a bit about just the sheer magnitude of the environmental impact that this industry has and how she sees that changing in the future. And finally, we hear from climate activist and musical artist Shutezka Martinez as he discusses the nexus of climate, social, and racial justice. He describes our need to build coalition amongst movements in order to affect lasting change. So without further ado, enjoy this special episode. How would you describe the problem you're solving? Okay, so well, first let me clear something up is most people don't understand climate change and global warming. Even the people who are very much in the space and feel that they understand it. So can I take a minute and just describe the issue? You can take two to three minutes and describe the issue if you'd like. Okay, so I'm (laughs) going to try to do it as fast as possible. So there's a carbon cycle on Earth, which means that everything that's alive eventually dies and breaks down into methane, and methane eventually turns into CO2, and it also breaks down into CO2. So, you know, plants, animals, bacteria, diatoms, phytoplankton, fish, you know, everything eventually breaks down and that's the cycle of life and part of it is this you know all these gases that go up into the atmosphere and then spring comes alive and sucks them back down and leaves pop out and so that cycle is about a hundred gigatons a gigaton is about a four hundred thousand olympic size swimming pools worth of gas which is not the right uh, analogy but you get the point. Yeah, that so that doesn't a, help me visualize much. Right. 400,000 yeah. 400,000. You know, the usual 400,000 <laughs> you know, Olympic size swimming pools. You know, when you go yeah. to the mall and there's those 400,000 <laughs> swimming pools. But it's a lot. It sounded like a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot, lot. You know, so the cycle before human beings kind of came on the scene was 100 up, 100 down, 100 up, 100 down. And suddenly this new species arrives on the scene and, you know, they have this neocortex. And they're like, whoa, I'm going to invent tools. You know, mm. uh, look at these these resources. They're called, we don't know what they're called. They're trees. I can build things from them. I can burn them. So it starts mm. cutting down trees. So now we have one of these, you know, decades old, century old beings that used to suck down carbon every year dying because we're cutting them down. And then, mm. you know, fast forward 
tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, and we dig a hole in the ground looking for some water, and this black stuff gushes out. And before that, you know, we dig, go down a mine, and we find some coal. And basically, we start digging up old carbon. Right. So then we're like, and we're, you know, so we're clearing forests, so there's less of the stuff sucking down the carbon. Right. And we're digging up new carbon, and, you know, we're starting to create a deficit and a bigger deficit times hundreds of years. So now you have this imbalance between what we as a modern civilization are producing in greenhouse gas emissions and what the earth can absorb. And just like a greenhouse, the sun hits through our atmosphere, heats up all of these molecules in these invisible molecules in our atmosphere. And usually the stuff gets bounced back into space, but some of it stays in the atmosphere, heats up our planet times decades, is resulting in an in a imbalance of our kind of life support system. Right. So which people don't do people take Earth for granted. Earth is a very delicate system. And every time the chemical balance get disrupted, we do get a massive extinction event. This is not some big uh, revelation. It's just that this time this species of 8 billion people, 50% of which are now consumers, right? you know, and the other 50% is about to join the ranks of consumers, now want stuff. They want energy. They want iPads. They want cars. They want air conditioning. They want to go on vacation. They want to buy their kids toys, etc. And that's their right to do, just like we all had that party. They have the same party, but it, the math doesn't work. In terms of running out of time, like when you use that term biospheric collapse, are we on the kind of precipice of it are we halfway down that road already and and we need to like kind of reversing it and get back to safety how how do people in your space that really understand this how, how do they talk about that biosphere collapse and where we're at now well i mean i don't really i don't know how to quantify it i don't know if where we are i mean when you talk about the oceans we fished 90 percent of all of the big species out already right so the you know so is does that mean we're 90 percent of the way there and biospheric collapse on the ocean does that happen you know i don't know if uh, you or any of your listeners heard of something called ocean acidification well ocean acidification comes from the oceans absorbing co2 and creating carbonic acid which makes the oceans more acidic mm. and what that acidity does over time and it makes it harder and harder for phytoplankton to build their little shells if they're the beginning of the food chain then zooplankton can't eat them and small fish can't eat zooplankton the medium medium fish can't eat those so you have a complete marine collapse food chain collapse right so you know so i don't know where to quantify it but it's something that we don't want right like we all don't want to live in a world where the only other beings that can survive are you know the are i don't know cockroaches and rats and beyond meat right <laughs> exactly <laughs> lab lab grown protein and that, that's all we got left yeah i mean it's no fun like it's fun to have butterflies and hummingbirds and you know they also have a right to exist as well i mean they didn't do anything they didn't contribute to this mess we did how would you describe the problem you're solving so the problem is the fashion industry is one of the greatest polluters of air and water in the world. And while people, you know, don't think about what they're putting on their bodies, they think about what they're putting in their bodies. It actually matters a lot because at the end of the day, when you pull the curtain back and you unveil the human and environmental impacts of the fashion industry and the amount of toxins going into fashion, we need to be thinking differently about slowing down fashion and also 
minimizing the impacts across waste, water, energy, climate change, chemical use, and social justice. Help me understand how we got here with the fashion industry, how it became uh, such a monstrosity when it comes to the environment. What, what have been the key moments in history? Yeah, well, I would say the introduction of fast fashion has certainly contributed to magnifying and multiplying the impact significantly. You've got an industry, when you talk about fast fashion, that's gone from two to four seasons a year to more than 52 seasons a year, making fashion disposable. And by degrading you know, fashion to this point where we, we've compromised on quality, we've also been proliferating the use of you know, energy and water and chemicals by virtue of mass production. So that's definitely been a huge shift in our industry, and we need to now reverse the paradigm and go back where we started to fewer, fewer seasons and more timeless collections. I wonder what's like, what's the next language and metrics on the horizon for this industry? Like, I think a lot about how much the car industry changed once people stopped talking about horsepower and started talking about miles per gallon. Like all of a sudden that became the metric, right? Before it was like, oh, it's 500 horsepower. And then you're like, wait, how many miles per gallon is it? And when I think about fashion, I hear oftentimes, like, if, is it made out of like recycled materials you hear now? But I wonder if something like how long can you wear that shirt, right? What's the average lifespan of that shirt or other things like that are on the horizon that this next evolution, you said we're very early in this game. I wonder what the next evolution is in like consumer questions and what they look for in these products. I think there's kind of, I would say two paths, two key paths. I mean, there's lots of spokes in the wheel of change within the fashion world, but the two that are right now kind of most front and center, one is, fibers and materials, right? And talking about, you know, measuring things like carbon, right? Where that was just such a foreign concept to the fashion world. In fact, you'll see statistics range around this, but if you include agriculture and transportation, eight to 10% of the world's carbon footprint is coming out of the fashion industry, right? Mm. So now we're looking at all hands on deck and the board I told you about the textile exchange with all these big companies, we've made an industry-wide commitment to reduce our carbon footprint by at least 45% by 2030. So now it's all hands on deck looking at carbon mitigation and measuring the amount of carbon in your supply chains, starting from the soil all the way to the manufacturing processes. So that's one part is, again, fiber and materials. The second is probably circularity. And you mentioned recycled. It's not just about how many times can you wear it. It's what's the life of the garment look like? Rather than putting it in a landfill, is it of the quality that when you're done, you can swap, you can, you know, send it to the real real and it can be bought in a resale market, a rental market. I mean, you know, companies like wardrobe and rent the runway, I mean, are getting more life out of clothing than ever before from the standpoint of putting something in your closet. And I can just tell you, you know, how many things I used to have in my closet that, you know, I've worn them a handful of times and, you know, especially the, the nicer things that now with social media, you know, there's this expectation that you should be look, you know, have different outfits all the time. Right. So totally. I love the whole circular economy as well. In fact, at Yes And, which is our D2C brand, we just started, we just partnered up with a company called Recurate and we're going to be introducing a resale market, uh, a secondhand market for Yes And as well. So I think, and then there's an app that is now coming to life that's going to be able to trace that garment all the way through all these different lifetimes. And the real real does that as well. So, you know, I think we're at the beginning of, you know, a paradigm shift in fashion where people are going to be asking, you know, the questions and reading labels in a different way. And they're going to be shopping differently and, and trying to 
buy from companies that are supporting better quality garments. And I think also moving from China into other countries is also starting to happen in the fashion industry. Uh, also to look at, you know, supply chains from a dip- through a different lens. It's not always about cheapest, fastest, and lowest denomination. But, you know, unfortunately, consumers right. have driven price to that point. We got to re-educate. Like, how, how would you define the problem you're tackling? Absolutely. I think the the organizing space that I came up in, you know, and I'm now grappling with both with this organizing history and as an artist looks at, I guess, just like human relations with the earth and with our land. And inherently, I think that really ties into, as you said, so many other things, our relationship with the current economic system, our government. And I think I've really, I've really tried to push myself further in understanding this from from perspectives of like just frontline indigenous organizers and frontline organizers of, of, of color who have really done a lot of the groundwork that has brought us to where we are at in the current conversation around both the climate crisis and just ground us in, in alternative understandings of how we can relate with the world around us. The problem is, is varied, but I think the problem inherently is like our our relationship to the land, our relationship to where we live, where we stand. And I think that is demonstrated in, in the policy that we see, you know, in our society. It's demonstrated through right. economic practices. It's demonstrated through, you know, social relationships between one another. And yeah, I think we're, we're at, this, at this moment where we can really look at that relationship and see that that is the catalyst that has created the climate crisis, the, cri- the, the climate crisis being, you know, a symptom of our disharmony with our relation with ourselves, with each other and with the land. Right. There's like a lot of people are tackling the climate crisis from this kind of science lens of, you know, we're putting out too much carbon emissions. We don't, it sounds like you start, you start the conversation from a philosophical lens of what is our relationship with this planet in general? What's our right? What's not our right, et cetera. How would you, how would you describe the current problem with like modern philosophy around how it relates to the earth? Yeah, I think, I think you can track it back to pre-industrialization and and look at settler colonialism and mm. the connotations that that has had in many different parts of the world give specific context to the region that we speak of but like you know me growing up a son of you know indigenous immigrant father from mexico growing up in the states you know looking at the climate from a little bit of like this western perspective grounded in like a lot of indigenous philosophies that i that i came up with really understanding that it is in the best interest of the existing structure of the settler government to uphold this this relationship, the certain defined relationship with land, with place, with natural resources that allows us to believe that that is exploitable. In the same way, and this, this same framework and the same mentality is what justifies the exploitation of people, of communities, of labor, of indigenous lands, of clean water, right? So I think, you know, these infrastructures that we have created since the founding of, you know, the United States of America. And and this is speaking very centric to like what I've experienced in this country, but like the infrastructure doesn't exist to actually protect people. It exists to protect capital. It exists to protect Mm -hmm. corporations. Um, Our energy grid is not set up for energy democracy. And so ensure that people can have clean power, have access to, to energy when things like these increased catastrophes land in our communities, um, or even the pandemic, I think, really exemplified how, like, th- the way that this country operates actually is totally okay with 
you know, black and brown poor people dying from this virus while the wealthiest people in this country and on the planet continue to grow their wealth. At the risk of digressing, I mean, that was one of the most inspiring things to me about the latest round of these like BLM rallies, et cetera, this last year is it felt like the conversations finally went beyond policing. And we there was a lot more conversations about like the reverberation of, you know, colonialism. I remember um, the Netherlands, no, Belgium took down like King Leopold's statue in Belgium, like understanding the mm-hmm. history there. And I wonder, you know, from your perspective, from this indigenous perspective, was there part of you that was like, oh, cool. I don't know if you even noticed that, but if you did, were you thinking maybe this conversation can even evolve deeper and be more inclusive? And did you feel like the indigenous cause did get to participate in those conversations or do you feel like it kind of fell short? Yeah, I mean, I I think one thing that I've really appreciated about a lot of like forward thinking indigenous organizers is just the strong emphasis and affirmation of, of just collective liberation and really understanding mm. like the liberation of our black kin as essential to like the liberation of indigenous people mm. and a lot of black organizers too like on vice versa really understanding that you know frameworks of of land back you know and, and reparations for our black kin and um, those things are very intertwined and very connected and so i think conceptually that entered like the space the the dialogue in indigenous communities in a bigger way and also like we're pushed to confront a lot of anti-blackness in indigenous communities that is inherent. And those identities also don't exist in isolation because we have so many of our relatives that are black and indigenous, you know, that occupy both, that, that have both of those identities. And so as everything was playing out over the summer, you know, post the, the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and things were getting really intense in the streets and really powerful and the conversation around police abolition and defunding the police, you know, entering these different spaces, the conversation did go just from, you know, reform and body cams and like police accountability and firing killer cops Mm -hmm. to like, what do these alternative futures look like? What is, what is a world beyond, you know, the current violence in our communities, the current systemic violence that our black relatives are experiencing? What does that look like? And, and, and that alternative world benefits all of us, you know, that, that, that alternative world does have the liberation of all peoples in mind. Um, And so, you know, very tangibly, we saw this kind of collective awakening play out in how racist mascots that have been, you know, indigenous organizers that have been fighting for a long time to get these racist mascots removed from pro sports teams, like with the Washington football team. And then we could see that with the toppling of racist monuments and statues to colonizers, like the reclamation of Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. All of that was pushed further and further. And I think we started to seeing actual strides. And, and a lot of that had to do with Black and Indigenous unity. There is a lot more work to be done to really ensure that the continued conversation around Indigenous sovereignty really stands true to a commitment to Black liberation. And that we just continue showing up in that good way. Like Otherwise, we're falling short and our vision is short-sighted if it doesn't include this like broader context, you know, and, and I think, right. you know, you can see like even black radicals throughout history and from Fred Hampton and, and, and look at what the Black Panther Party did and was building coalitions with whether it was like the Rainbow Coalition and working with like the mm-hmm. Young Lords in Chicago to the American Indian Movement and like the Red Power Movement that was popping off around similar times and like really seeing each other too at Standing Rock where there were different Black Lives Matter activists that were showing up at the encampment to, you know, stand in support and hold that line of solidarity, you know, folks coming from right. Flint, Michigan, who had experienced this crisis of damaged, contaminated water. So yeah, like that, it needs to be tight knit. I think it needs to continue to be. Yeah. And we need to just keep learning and unlearning. 
Thank you for listening to Radical Ones. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Radical Ones. You can also follow us on social at Radical Ones Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.